What a joy it's been for us to worship with you this morning. Our family has been blessed tremendously. If you are not in that baptism service this morning, um, were those recorded? Do we know? Is there a video of those? I hope there is because you need to hear each of those testimonies if you were not there. Uh, we were tremendously blessed by being a part of that and by worshiping with you now this hour. So thank you so much for having us. And it's a privilege to open God's word with you. And um, just for clarity, hun, what I said was, I think it'll be 20 years <laughs> this October, but I don't know. Yeah. I, it's a little more accurate than Dan let on, just to be clear. But um, I do appreciate that. For those of you that know Brent Osterberg, raise your hand if you know Brent. Yeah, quite a few of you. Uh, what a blessing he has been to me and to our family. And so thank you for producing Brent, because Brent will tell you that next unto his parents' influence in his life, it was uh, you as his church family and Dan that has uh, made him uh, the man of God and the servant of God that he is. And so I owe you a great debt of gratitude simply for your influence in his life, which is now his uh, influence in mine. So thank you. Thank you. And this morning, the message that I'm going to share with you, I originally wrote for a gathering of pastors, and I was asked to do that, and uh, it was a group of pastors, many of whom were not committed to expository preaching as we think of that and define it and practice it. And so it was really sort of a biblical apologetic and a challenge unto them to begin preaching God's word this way. Now, the original message was an hour-long rapid fire for pastors, like drinking from a from a fire hydrant or a fire hose, as they say. And so I broke it up into two sermons later. Dan heard just part two of that and said, can you preach that sermon? I said, that was part two of a two-part sermon. He said, that's okay. You can just do them. You can, you can get it in there. <laughs> I said, okay, we will do it. We will do it. And so um, I will stick more closely to my notes than I normally would. If you see a lot of the top of my head, I apologize. But if I don't stick to my manuscript... We'll be here possibly even later than you are with one of Dan's normal sermons. And so, so forgive me if I stick to the manuscript this morning in order to get this content in. But uh, in the book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, he says of uh, expositional preaching or expository preaching that it is not only the first mark, but it is far and away the most important of them all. Because if you get this one right, all the others should follow. If preaching is this important to a church's health, and we believe that it is, and if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, well, then our preaching of the Word must be shaped by the Word that we seek to preach. So this morning, we're going to look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. You can open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to take a big chunk, verses 14 to 41 this morning. It's the first recorded sermon of the church age, following Jesus' ascension and the Spirit's arrival. And some who received the Spirit began speaking in languages that were previously unknown to them. And this was a sign that God used in the apostolic era to miraculously validate his uh, messengers and their message. And when this phenomenon broke out publicly, Peter stood up in the crowd and preached this sermon to explain the work of God from the Word of God to any and all who would hear. 
So this morning we'll walk through Peter's sermon as an example of biblical preaching. And so I want you to see what we'll call 10 marks of biblical preaching. We'll borrow from Mark Dever's book title, but we'll add one. We want to do one better, and so we'll have 10 marks of biblical preaching this morning. There is an outline in your bulletin, and you will see with 10 points, we will have to move quickly. And the first of those points comes in the first two verses, verses 14 and 15. But before I read those two verses and talk about that point, let me pray for us one more time. Would you bow with me? Father, it is your word that we endeavor to understand this morning. It's your word that I endeavor to preach this morning. And Father, that is humbling. Father, we are grateful for your grace unto us. Yet in your sovereign grace, you moved toward us as sinners, as unworthy sinners. You've poured, you've lavished, Father, your grace on us, Paul says. You have given us eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. You have given us ears to hear the truth from your word. Father, if you had not given these things, we would still be your enemies. And so we thank you and we praise you for bringing us here together this morning under your word, filled with your spirit, Father, to exalt your Son for your glory. Father, we owe our thanks eternally to you for our lives, for our life in Christ, and for your word. So, Father, would you guide us as we study your word this morning? Would you keep us from error as we seek to understand, to interpret, and to apply your word to our lives? And, Father, I pray that next year, this time, we would all be more skillful at doing just that and would find more joy in believing and in walking worthily of the gospel. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want you to look first at verses 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 2 to see the first mark of biblical preaching, and I would call it simply bold proclamation. Note Peter's tone in the middle of this crowd. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He comes out with bold proclamation of the truth. In Ephesians six nineteen and 20, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray that God would increase his boldness in preaching. Uh, that utterance, he says, may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly, he says again, as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul and clearly Peter with him believe that biblical preaching ought to be done boldly. He doesn't ask for cleverness or slickness or good timing or um, sensitivity, but he asks for boldness in gospel proclamation. Now, the great Lloyd-Jones said a man came to hear George Whitfield and asked if he might print his sermons, and George Whitfield gave this reply, well, I have no inherent objection, if you like, 
but you will never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and thunder. Bold proclamation came at all times from George Whitfield. But this boldness is not brashness. And it is not a loudness. It's, it's confidence in the Word of God which actually breeds a tough humility or a gentle boldness. Now listen to this balance in the life of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5. to Paul says, And I was with you, listen to these words, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of what? Power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, boldness is speaking clearly and compellingly about Christ from Scripture under the control of the Holy Spirit so that the power of God, not the pomp of the preacher, propels the message. Peter comes right out of the gate establishing a tone of bold proclamation in Acts 2, verses 14 and 15. But why can Peter be this bold? Is it because of anything in him? No. Peter is bold because he is speaking God's words, not his own. Look at verses 16 to 21 with me of Acts 2. The foundation of bold proclamation is, Mark number 2, biblical Exposition. Peter's not three sentences in, and he begins quoting Scripture, specifically Joel chapter 2. Look at this, starting in verse 16. Peter says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's quite an opening for a sermon that Peter delivers straight from the text of Joel 2. Men of God have always been called to center the people of God on the Word of God. Biblical preaching preaches the biblical text. God told Joshua deep in the Old Testament, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Isn't that interesting? He's not just to chew on it. I think the implication is that he is to boldly proclaim it. But you shall meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And we know that Joshua listened. He was trained under Moses in bold proclamation and biblical exposition. He became a biblical preacher. Joshua 8.35 says this, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. They said, Joshua, there are visitors here. Joshua, there are people that don't believe in Yahweh here. Joshua, there are seekers here. And so you know what he said? Good, then turn up the preaching. 
He says, I will not withhold one word from the word of God that he has spoken through Moses. He was a biblical preacher and stuck to the text. So too, Peter followed suit here. And he moved immediately to the text of Scripture to explain the work of Christ by the Spirit he had sent. This is why the primary diet we offer is verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible, allowing God to speak his mind the way he chose to reveal it. Biblical exposition. Now, our preaching can be bold and centered on the text of Scripture, but if we don't interpret that text rightly, then we fail to feed the flock. Now, look at verse 22, and I want you to see how Peter interprets the text of Joel chapter 2. Peter goes immediately to what we'll call Mark 3, Christ-focused interpretation of his text. I'll explain that carefully in a moment. But he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, coming right off of Joel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, And down in 33b, he says, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He explains this work of God in Christ. Now, in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, We preach Christ crucified. But Paul preached the entirety of the Word. He preached from the whole counsel of God at a time when only the Old Testament had yet been collected. And yet Paul says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. Christ was the center of Paul's message always. So you might say, well, what if you preach through an Old Testament book? What if you preach through a passage with no mention of Jesus? Well, Jesus and the apostles preached the Old Testament and showed that it centered upon and was fulfilled in his life and ministry. Luke 24, 27 says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Old Testament, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I need to be careful here. I understand that a lot of your uh, ladies, I think, have just gone through a hermeneutics course. Is that right? the art and science of of interpreting Scripture, and you dealt with the idea of of Christ-centered interpretation, as some would call that. What biblical preaching does not do is uh, look at the details of an Old Testament text and move to allegory. Oh, here is a tree. It must be the cross. Or a text that mentions red. Well, it must be the blood of Jesus. No, that would be to do great violence to the text. We don't believe that every text of the Old Testament is speaking directly about Jesus. That's bad interpretation. Not every hill in the landscape of the Old Testament is Calvary's hill. But the Bible is one cohesive story that finds its purpose and fulfillment in Christ. Meaning, from every hill in the Old Testament landscape, one can see in the distance Calvary's hill. J.I. Packer said the traveler through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. And so biblical preaching never loses sight of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Always showing that text's final fulfillment and purpose in Christ. And this is why, and I've never asked Dan this question, but sometimes uh, young seminary students will debate 
Um, can you be a faithful Christian preacher and preach a message from the Old Testament without ever mentioning the name of Christ? So I'm going to make a bold statement and see if Dan nods or shakes his head here. But I am, I am certain that you will never hear a sermon from this pulpit that does not mention some aspect of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, our reigning and returning King. Is that true, Dan? Have you ever preached a sermon here and never mentioned the Word of Christ? That'd be very unchristian, wouldn't it? And yet there are Christians who argue for this. I, why, I don't know. But listen, a sermon with no Christ is not a Christian sermon and is most certainly not biblical preaching. But Peter digs deeper at this point in the sermon. So Christ-focused interpretation of a particular text of Scripture forms the load-bearing walls of his sermon. But those walls can only ever stand plumb and square on Mark 4, a sovereignty of God-centered foundation. A sovereignty of God-centered foundation. That's a terrible point title. There's too many hyphens, but I didn't know how else to say clearly what I meant to say. And it's that all biblical preaching is formed on a foundation centered in the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, wait a minute. Was Jesus killed by the hands of lawless men, sinners? Or was he delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Well, the only biblical answer is yes. Now, our tiny human minds will never understand some aspects of the intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But to avoid the subject is to settle for something less than biblical preaching. Because God never shies away from the subject of His sovereignty, and neither does faithful biblical preaching. See if God is clear or unclear in Isaiah 46, 9-11. to Now you listen and decide. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Now, does that seem clear to you? <laughs> Did God dance around this point or say, well, it's sort of hard, and so well, let's just avoid it? God says, beginning to end, I am sovereign, and we rejoice. In God's sovereignty. Sovereignty lies close to the center of that which makes God God and distinguishes Him from us. It's one of His incommunicable attributes. We don't share in it. We are not sovereign. And I'm sure that we don't understand the millionth part of the implications of God's vast good freedom and infinite active providence. But we never shy away from the subject just because it's difficult. And neither does Peter here. You, he says, he's confronting them, probably with an outstretched finger in a very expressive culture. You killed Jesus, and yet, this is God's plan. 
He does not shy away from this difficult reality. God used Jonathan Edwards to spark tremendous revival in the colonies. And John Piper credits Edwards' power in the pulpit specifically to his vision of God's sovereignty. He says, if we don't share the greatness of Edwards' vision of God, we will not approach the greatness of his preaching. Now, on the other hand, if God in his grace should see fit to open our eyes to the vision of Edwards, if we were granted to taste and see the sovereignty of the Almighty the way Edwards tasted it, then a renewal of the pulpit in our day would be possible, indeed, inevitable. Edwards constructed his sermons on the foundation of the sovereignty of God. And so will biblical preachers today. So preachers desiring biblical faithfulness engage in bold proclamation. Biblical exposition, Christ-focused interpretation, all on a sovereignty of God-centered foundation. And preaching like this shines the light of God's glory and righteousness, which always exposes the darkness of man's sinfulness. And that brings us to our fifth mark of biblical preaching, and that is loving confrontation. Loving confrontation. Look at verses 23 and 24. Have you ever sat under a sermon in this room and felt convicted of your sin? Anyone? Good, there's two honest people in the room. <laughs> if you have, then I suggest that biblical preaching is happening here. But listen, listen. Verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter tells his listeners directly, they killed Jesus. The one God had just attested to them by mighty works and wonders and whom God had then raised from the dead. Meaning... They were actively ignoring God's revelation and directly opposing God's work. Biblically faithful preaching pulls no punches. Rather, it loves people enough to confront actions and attitudes that oppose God. Biblical preaching loves people enough to confront actions and attitudes that oppose God. God, if you didn't hear those testimonies this morning, oh, I pray that there is a recording. And if there's not, get a list of who shared their testimony and take them out in order to lunch and ask them to share with you their testimony because you will be blessed. Because what I heard were testimonies of people whose sins were lovingly confronted by a gracious and sovereign God, often through the preaching of his word. The Word of God is a surgeon's scalpel for sin-diseased hearts. Now, you know Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season to what? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Jared Wilson recalls going to church as a young man, feeling loved and welcomed, and then being caught off guard by the sermon. He said, as quickly as I had stepped into an environment that felt accepting and welcoming, I was met with a sermon that made me feel like I had just been slapped in the face. 
Not because he was speaking ill or being rude, he says, but that he was telling me things about myself I didn't want to hear. This pastor was preaching things out of the Bible that opposed the way I was living my life. He said things I didn't like. He said things that made me get defensive. But guess what? As uncomfortable as it made me feel, his words were exactly what I needed. Now, this type of discomfort is something all of us need. He continues to be reminded that a life lived outside of the narrow road, reliant on the flesh and personal desires, is not the life God has destined us for, end quote. And so Peter here, and faithful preachers for the last 2,000 years, lovingly confront sin with the Word of God. Anything less would not be biblical preaching. Now, Peter has gone deep from his sermon introduction onward. He missed the memo. He didn't read the hundreds, probably thousands of books in the last 30 years telling preachers about cookies on the bottom shelf and and, uh, uh, making people just feel good. Or as an atheist told me, attending a church in the area, you know, the sermons are just as helpful for me because they help me, for instance, communicate well at work, etc. When that's the case, biblical preaching, I'm afraid, isn't happening. Peter moves deep from his sermon introduction onward, and he's already started meddling, as one of our older members loves to accuse me of when he feels convicted by a sermon. He says, brother, you went from teaching to meddling now. (laughs) And then he smiles and says, and I needed it. Isn't that great? What a good encouragement. You see, Peter knows he needs to support his strong, convicting assertions. He's come out strong. He's confronted sin. His bold public proclamation. He needs to support what he's saying. So how does he do that? Well, not with video clips or magic tricks or jokes or props or costumes or anything else. And all of those things may be appropriate in their own way, in the right setting. But none of those, though not bad in themselves, none of them have any power to convict or save, or sanctify. And so Peter supports his interpretation of Scripture, supports the points of his sermon, so to speak, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. The sixth mark of biblical preaching is Scripture-saturated confirmation. Scripture-saturated confirmation. Look at what he says. He quotes now Psalm 16, 8 to 11, starting in verse 25, For David says... Concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so as all expositors have always done from the Old Testament through today, Peter supported his claims about Scripture with other Scripture. He'll explain his interpretation in a minute. But for now, I just want you to notice the technique that to defend what he says from Scripture, he brings in other Scriptures, looks at the whole counsel of God, and he says... Um, that David was talking about the resurrection of Christ in this well-loved psalm, loved then among the Jews as, as it is now among us. Listen to this. The apostles made a habit of this. In Acts 18, 24, we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. Apollos is so well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, all they had at this time, that he spent his time showing by the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah could be none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These were Bible men, and they supported their claims from Scripture with more Scripture. Why? Because I think they delighted to include more in their sermon of that alone which has the power to save. And that's God working through his word. W.A. Criswell tells the story of a farmer in the 1930s who brought him a book and said, what is this? Criswell said, well, that's a, that's a Bible in Spanish. The man said, what should I do with it? And Criswell said, isn't there a family living on your farm that speaks Spanish? Yes. He said, well, give it to them. Two weeks later, that family came to the farmer and said, we've been reading this Bible and we've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and we want to be baptized. Criswell baptized them and they joined his church. And a while later, that family's house burned down and the farmer put them up in a different house. And the farmer drove Criswell out to visit the family. When they pulled in, the farmer came out uh, tenderly holding this partially burnt Bible. His wife and his kids came out behind him. And that father said to Criswell, Pastor, the house burned down, but I rushed into its flames to rescue one thing, this holy word of God. And I just wanted you to see it. This book brought us the saving life in Christ Jesus. You see, no one has ever rushed into a burning house to save a great visual. No one has ever run through the flames to save a punchy joke. But people might rush into the flames to rescue the Word of God through which their family was brought to faith in Christ for all of eternity. And so biblical preaching supports Scripture with Scripture, adding more of the Word of God to the sermon, modeling that Berean spirit that we love to speak of in our circles. But what was Peter doing specifically with Psalm 16 when he begins supporting his claims about Joel 2 with other Scriptures like Psalm 16? What's the point he's making from that text? Well, he moves now, seventh, to logic-stirring substantiation. Logic-stirring substantiation. He will not settle for just-trust-me arguments like many of the cults. He's willing to engage the minds of his hearers at a deep level. So look at what he says, starting in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Well, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He 
has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, meaning the gift of tongues that prompted this sermon and its explanation. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and he brings in more scriptural confirmation, this time quoting from Psalm 110. David says, I'm sorry, Peter says that David says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter argues that because David died, and they had all seen his nearby tomb, that David couldn't have been talking about himself in Psalm 16. Further, he says that the gift of tongues that they're witnessing, just after Jesus of Nazareth's uh, resurrection and ascension, is proof that when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, he was talking about the Messiah who must be Jesus given this miracle that they were witnessing. (laughs) That is a multi-linked chain of logic. He says, you see this speaking in other languages. I'm telling you that that's from the Holy Spirit. Go listen yourself. They're not babbling. They're speaking languages that are known that others can hear and see and prove. And he says, this is what was talked about in Joel chapter 2. He says, by the way, looking at Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, we know that this couldn't have been talking about David or any other human. It must have been talking about the Messiah. But notice that all that's being said about the Messiah aligns perfectly in this Jesus whom you crucified. I think that those that were listening at some point in this sermon probably fell silent. I think you could have heard a pin drop on those dusty streets. It's very strong logic. Logic like this became a hallmark of apostolic ministry, writing, and preaching. Let me prove that to you very quickly. Acts 17, 2 and 3 details Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, saying, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Reasoned, explaining, proving. Then in Athens, Acts 17, 17, he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Then in Corinth, in Acts 18, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Ephesus, Acts 19, 8 and 9, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke Boldly, there's our bold proclamation, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 9, he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Christian preaching is never a just trust me affair. I tell our folks all the time, don't take my word for this. Go home and read these scriptures again and come back and tell me if these things are so. I trust God use his word. Martin Lloyd-Jones called preaching logic on fire. And J.P. Moreland in his excellent book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul, he said, anti-intellectualism has spawned an irrelevant gospel. Today we share the gospel primarily as a means of addressing felt needs. And then he also points out that many large cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness followed evangelical revival movements, and they found many supposed converts who were given the basic truth of Christ's death for sin, but were not taught sound doctrine from good reasoning thereafter. So Moreland says this, their overall effect 
was to overemphasize immediate personal conversion to Christ instead of a studied period of reflection and conviction. Now, emotional, simple, popular preaching instead of intellectually careful and doctrinally precise sermons. And personal feelings and relationship to Christ instead of a deep grasp of the nature of Christian teaching and ideas, end quote. Faithful biblical preaching will always include some kind of logic-stirring substantiation. But Peter didn't stop with scriptural proof or logical reasoning because it's not enough to cast the net. Biblical preaching draws the net in. And I want you to see Peter's next words. And I want to say, too, that some in our circles that understand the big picture of the Word of God we do and are not afraid of the full sovereignty of God, even in the affairs of salvation, some in our circles adopt a viewpoint that, in my mind, is anathema. And they say that because God is sovereign in the affairs of salvation, then what need have I to plead with men to repent and believe? Uh, I don't know what we would call this. I guess we could give it a name, but it wouldn't be nice. And I would simply say that I have no use for it. I know neither does Pastor Dan or the elders here. We believe in the full sovereignty of God, even in the affairs of salvation. And we see that Jesus Christ himself pleaded with men and women to repent and believe. The apostles pleaded with men and women to repent and believe this very day. Paul said he would trade his salvation for his unbelieving uh, Jewish countrymen if he could. said his desire was that they all would be saved. And those quotes come on either side of Romans 9. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. If you've come to the position of accepting God's full sovereignty and salvation, that has somehow sent you down the road of believing that evangelism and evangelistic preaching and begging humbly men and women to be saved is somehow excluded, you've missed the point. You need to come and let one of your elders gently guide you to the next step to show you that it was, in fact, George Whitfield's uh, strong understanding of the sovereignty of God that pressed him for a lifetime to preach the gospel with open arms and invite everyone, everyone, everyone to repent and believe that very day with strong promises that God will save them the minute they come in genuine repentance and faith. How do you hold together the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, that effectual call of God and the general call of God? Well, if you can explain all the facets of that to me, I would love to hear it. You've done more than any theologian for 2,000 years. I don't claim to understand these things perfectly. I'm simply bound to proclaim them boldly. But I do draw strength and comfort from these great truths as well. So let's look at this next point of biblical preaching. See, that's what happens. If I look up from my notes, start pointing down, we'll never get out. None of that was in there, but that's okay. We're doing good on time. Peter didn't stop with scriptural proof or logical reasoning. It's not enough to cast a net. We must draw it in if we would preach like Jesus and the apostles. So he moves, eighth, to decision-inducing provocation decision-inducing provocation, pressing the minds and through their minds the wills of his hearer. Look at uh, hearers, look at verse 36. Here's what he says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you 
crucified. Let all the house of Israel know for certain. Peter has read and explained the scriptures boldly, clearly. He has supported his claims with other scripture. He has showed the sound logic and reason of his claims, but he doesn't stop there. His preaching was never purely cerebral, some interesting thoughts to ponder. Here's an idea. Maybe, just maybe, you could consider it. Some preaching sounds like this, but we should have no use for it. You know, I've heard people say, I was thinking the other day, well, good. Um, but I don't understand that. I don't know that that's biblical preaching. Um, rather, Peter immediately pressed the minds of his hearers, calling them to make a decision to know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Those are his words. To put a mental stake in the ground that very day. And Paul does something similar in Romans 6 after explaining the Christian's union with Christ and his death and resurrection so beautifully and powerfully enacted this morning in our midst. Paul says then in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He presses their mind to make a decision, a change once and for all in the way that they think about themselves relative to Christ and his death and resurrection. John brought us Writing to preachers in the 1800s put it this way. The application in a sermon is not merely an appendage to the discussion or a subordinate part of it, but is the main thing to be done. Spurgeon says where the application begins, there the sermon begins. The preacher is not to speak before the people, but to them. He must earnestly strive to make them apply what he says to themselves. He continues, Daniel Webster once said, and repeated it with emphasis, when a man preaches to me, I want him to make it a personal matter. A personal matter. A personal matter. You know what happens when biblical preaching becomes a personal matter? You have a bunch of moving testimonies and baptisms on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. across the hall. That's what happens when gospel preaching becomes a personal matter. And expositors don't float some ideas for you to think about over coffee as the sun rises, but press your minds and wills to make a decision today for Christ. Biblical preaching like that happens. You end up moved by the testimonies that we heard this morning. Oh, praise God for His work among us. Preaching is essentially a personal encounter in which the preacher's will is making a claim through the truth upon the will of the hearer, says Broadus. If there is no summons, there is no sermon, end quote. Peter doesn't send his hearers home to mull this over, hoping to maybe run into them again someday and see what they did with it. He presses their minds to make a firm decision regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he presses their wills, concluding with strong invitation. Look at verses 37 to 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is a strong invitation laden with biblical promise. The book of Hebrews, very possibly written originally as a sermon and then written down and circulated, contains similarly strong invitation. Listen to Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Why would the author of Hebrews write this way? Why would Peter press the minds and wills of his hearers to repent and believe today? Because this was the pattern and habit of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his earthly ministry. And we will never do better than to pattern our preaching after the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus repeatedly invited sinners to follow him promising them new life and rest. He says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In John 7, 37 and 38, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Strong invitation with promises attached. He says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As many people as are gathered here this Sunday morning, we can virtually guarantee that there are some who are here that do not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've, maybe you've been invited by a friend or a family member visiting you for the first time, or maybe like some of the testimonies we heard, you've been in Christian circles for a long time and it's been dawning on you. You've never truly repented of your sin and trusted in Christ unto salvation. Boy, if you've been feeling that conviction in your heart over these last months or weeks or minutes. I wish I could promise you that we could have a good conversation tomorrow and sort that out. But even in my relatively young age in ministry thus far, I have done funerals for infants, children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged people, and older people. I've not been a pastor that long. I cannot promise you tomorrow. I cannot. And it would be unloving to do so. But I can promise you with the full weight of inspired sacred scripture that if you come and repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone today for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. I can promise you that because the scriptures promise that. Jesus promises that. Oh, I beg you, friend, if you're uncertain of the state of your soul, don't leave here today without talking to one of these wonderful elders or their wives. Please come, please come and speak with one of these elders today.
Jesus was supremely logical in his preaching and teaching. And he called his hearers' minds to decision to accept the truth that he taught. And then he pressed his hearers' wills with invitation to act on what they had believed. He illuminated the truth, insisted on a decision, and invited hearers to follow him. And when Jesus and the apostles after him preached, it was not a harmless offer to ponder some interesting theories. Their sermons were dangerous invitations for hearers to take up their crosses to follow Jesus in a life and possibly a death like his. Because there is no joy or life apart from that. And Jesus and the apostles urged their hearers to respond today. And having preached like this once or twice or even for a year or two, they didn't then stop, figuring their evangelistic phase was done and they could move on to deeper things. No, the apostles' entire ministry and the ministry of all faithful biblical preachers since has been marked, tenth, by continual gospel exhortation. Continual gospel exhortation. Look at verses 40 and 41. And with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 20, 31, Paul says, For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And a few verses earlier, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul continually preached the gospel from all of Scripture, as did all of the apostles. Read their letters. You can never get more than a sentence from clear gospel truth. C.H. Spurgeon said, Never was a man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. (laughs) No, not even on earth to the sons of God was the cross ever too much spoken of. Outsiders may say, this man harps only on one string. Do you wonder? The carnal mind is enmity against God, and it especially shows its hatred by railing at the cross. The saintly ones find here in the perpetual monotony of the cross a greater variety than in all other doctrines put together. And Spurgeon says, preach you Christ and Christ and Christ and Christ and nothing else but Christ Another story is told of a man that came to Spurge and said, I've been in this church a long time, and all you ever talk about is the gospel of Jesus. When are you going to move on to other deeper topics? Spurgeon said, you might as well leave now, because as long as these lungs have breath, they will preach Christ. Because Spurgeon could see what Peter does here in Acts 2. He could see what Paul does throughout Acts and in his letters. He could see what the Lord Jesus did. And Spurgeon was determined to preach Christ continually. Brothers and sisters, may we always and ever point one another to Christ, not only in the pulpit, but in our homes and as we go. We never outgrow the gospel. In fact, it's been my experience consistently that as Christians mature, they discuss the gospel more often, not less. And those I've met who seem to be most mature in Christ were those who were most fixated on Christ and his cross and his life and reign and return. I pray that we never lose our first love, but grow more and more sincere in our love to Christ. It's been my firm 
experience as well that there is no spiritual growth apart from the Word of God. And so we must continue preaching the Word boldly. We must continue studying the Word in our homes, taking courses about how to study the Word, pointing each other to Christ through His Word. I would say again, if you are here and the Spirit has been convicting your heart over these last weeks or months or maybe just today, then come today. Come to Christ. Come and repent of your sin and believe in Christ. Come and speak after this very service with one of these elders. Ladies, if that's new to you and intimidating, their wives will be right here and would love to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. It's been such a privilege to be in this circle of churches as I have gotten to know uh, men like Pastor Dan, Pastor Brent, Randy, wherever he is, I don't see him this morning. Keith, so many others. I praise the Lord for men who have modeled biblical preaching to me because it's changed my life. My parents taught us the scriptures in the home. I was blessed by God to grow up under a faithful expositor in church, a man named Don Hauser in the Independent Baptist Church of North Tawanda who even as as a rogue teenager that was going through the motions but didn't really care about Jesus, his sermons Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, preaching through three different books, three different uh, times of the week, continually washed over me. And so by the time as a young man, I was finally ready to submit to God. The foundation had been laid. So I urge you to continue the faithful work of biblical preaching that's happening here. To do that with each other in the home, in your Bible studies. Make it your responsibility to support and uphold the faithful teaching and preaching uh, of the Word of God in this church. Because maybe even some uh, young punk hooligan skateboarder drummers (laughs) will both play the drums too, isn't that wild? (laughs) Didn't you tell me you play the drums? Oh, the guitar. That's almost as good. Even they may be sitting in the back listening. Even those that aren't quite ready to respond yet. Oh, how the faithful teaching of the Word will make a difference in their lives. So boy, I thank God for faithful parents, for faithful pastors, for faithful churches like this one, and I urge you to continue on. And in fact, in your small group discussions this week, there's some questions that you'll see that will help you to think about biblical preaching. And the last few questions are the most important. Because they're going to ask you, what might be your responsibility in encouraging and upholding the faithful preaching of the Word here? Because that is as much your responsibility as it is your pastor's. How do you equip and encourage them in this task? And if you're not in a small group yet here at this wonderful church, then this is the week to join one. And so come and don't miss out on that discussion. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. Oh, Lord, were it not for your word going out by your design into the world, then we, none of us, would be here. Because, Father, you have sent your word into the world as that means by which you save souls. You've told us in Romans 10. Oh, Father, we thank you. We praise you for the salvation that you offer us in and through Christ alone. So, Lord, I pray that this week you would stir in our hearts that you would strengthen us to understand, to comprehend the love that you pour out in Christ more deeply. 
I pray, Father, that you would stoke in us those fires of love and desire to read and study and cherish and apply your word. That we can see your glory more clearly in the face of Christ as it's portrayed in page after page after page of your inspired word. We thank you and we praise you. And again, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.